0: But if you look more broadly at the history of how people with mental illness have been treated, Christians have been part of the solution for a long time. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith
1: intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley.
2: And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. We've got a great episode lined up for you today, but before we jump into our conversation today, we want to begin with a segment in which we highlight some opportunities that we have for you here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Dr. Keithley, let me ask you first about an opportunity that we have for students here at Southeastern and even some who are not students, and it's called the Center for Faith and Culture Mentorship Program. What is that?
1: I'm very excited about uh, the mentorship program and how it's developed over the years. It is a competitive program in which uh, a person, whether they're a student or not, usually students, uh, they have to apply and and be approved uh, to take part. It is uh, a cadre or cohort, a small group of about a dozen, sometimes we've allowed as many as 15 to 18 to take part in a one-year intentional program in which we focus on uh, a particular aspect of our faith and how it relates to culture. Many times it's been like faith in the arts, or faith in science, how our faith involves uh, in work and economics, vocation. Other times we've talked about how faith is lived out in the public square occasionally we have focused on some particular issue like for this year we've dealt with theological anthropology the uh, the group often meets at our house penny and i uh, have the students over in our porch we have a dinner at each time Uh, and then we will also have special guests. and then we will go through important books that relate to the topics that we're talking about this is a program uh, that uh, we meet monthly during uh, the school year. Uh, so that means from August until May. And often we take field trips. You know, the, one of the nice things about being in the Raleigh Durham area is that there are so many other great venues that are having uh, things that relate very much to faith and culture, whether it's Duke University. Sometimes it's the uh, the Thomas Society at, at North Carolina State, or it's the Veritas Forum at UNC, uh, and so these are all things that we are able to do together and talk about it and hash out all the implications of that which we are learning. I find it one of the most enriching and rewarding experiences as a faculty member at Southeastern to be able to direct that and and students, if you. Uh, look at the responses that we've received through the years. You can see, I think the students would say the same thing.
2: Yeah, some students do it multiple years in a row just because I think they enjoy that atmosphere for learning. It's not like a classroom setting. I mean, this is where they do some reading, they get together, there's a fellowship element, and uh, they get to kind of learn through osmosis through through these meetings. Is that right?
1: Yes, and sometimes, uh, like I said, a lot of times when we have a special guest, uh It is like um, a conversation at a dinner party where we're eating, having the meal, and then we just start asking uh, that uh, special guest questions. Uh, typically, the guest is someone who is either a faculty member at Southeastern, and we're asking them about a particular area of expertise that they have, or we've brought in a special guest from the outside, again, because of their expertise on the issue that we're, we're talking about. And so um, those kind of experiences where you just get to, to ask that person for a period of an hour or so just and, and hear what they have to say— That's an experience you cannot be replicated in a classroom.
2: I completely agree. And as you're listening to this, if this is something that you are interested in, you want to see if it would be a good fit for you, we'll have a link in our show notes to the CFC Mentorship Program page. You can learn more about it. And if you're interested, there will be a button there you can click to request more information.
3: Medicine, psychiatry, mental health, and the Christian faith. How do all of these things intersect together? What do we think about these things? How do we think about these things? We are very excited to have with us today Dr. Warren Kinghorn. He is Esther Cauliflower Associate Research Professor. Bear with me. There's a lot of words here. Associate Research Professor for the Practice of Pastoral and Moral Theology, as well as the Co-Director for Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, and Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center. Dr. Keenhorn. thank you for being with us today.
0: Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here.
3: And we can tell you are bored to death. You clearly, from your title, have nothing to do. Nothing, uh, nothing at all. Nothing else no. going on besides podcast with us. But we really are excited about this conversation. I can't think of many more important conversations than this intersection of all of these different things. Uh, so thanks for your time today. Dr. Keekley.
1: You're a physician and a psychiatrist. So, How did you get interested in the connection between mental health and the Christian faith?
0: Well, I think first, uh, I am a physician and a psychiatrist and a theological ethicist. But before all of that, I was a Christian and a Southern Baptist. I think in part, growing up in a Southern Baptist church in South Carolina actually was the beginning of it. Uh, I was in a church where I saw things happen. My parents were involved in the youth ministry. And uh, even as a kid, I knew of things that were happening in the church. Uh, Not a lot of detail, but I remember that Uh, A parent of one of the youth died by suicide. Uh, I saw other uh, people in the church really struggle with various kinds of mental health problems. And even though there wasn't always the language to talk about it, I knew that church was a place where real life was going on and people struggled and could struggle and could talk about struggle. Uh, I think as I I also learned that uh, I could be vulnerable at church and it was a place where I was known and that I was loved. Mm. I also, growing up as a Southern Baptist, uh, had a sense that uh, psychology was not a bad thing, that actually uh, psychology had things to offer. And certainly, I read books by Christian psychologists as a kid and as an adolescent. Uh, eventually, I got to medical school and uh, began to wonder uh, even more, though, about what are we doing in healthcare? I- I'm training to be a physician, but how do I think about this as a Christian? And that led me to uh, really want to know more about Christian history, about the Bible, about theology. Uh, I remember uh, shadowing in an alcohol detox facility in Boston uh, when I was in medical school and hearing men talk about uh, drinking too much, but hating that they drink too much and hoping they could stop. And I remember thinking, is this disease? Is it sin? Mm -hmm. How would I know the difference between the two? That led me to want to study more. So eventually... I uh, left medical school for a couple of years to study theology, and I've been in that kind of dual role ever since.
1: Then what would be the right ways for a Christian to think about mental health challenges?
0: I think I would first say that uh, we have to start with what's most important, which is that uh, as humans, we are known and loved by God before all else. That that's the deepest truth about who we are more than what we can do or about our capacities, or about uh, how we fit into our relationships. And so God loves us and knows us. I think another thing is just to recognize as I learned early on in my experience in church that uh, mental health challenges are incredibly common. Uh, and we look at uh, the fact that one in five of us over the course of our lives will be depressed as psychiatrists to find depression. Around one in 20 of us is depressed at any given time. So that means in a church on Sunday, with a packed sanctuary, there's gonna be a lot of people who are actively struggling right at that moment. And so I think that uh, to, to recognize, first of all, that we are loved, that mental health problems are incredibly common, and that the church can be a place where people can come and can be open about what's happening with them, can find ways to get the help that they need, can grow in the love of God and in the love of others. I think is
1: something that uh, the church can really embrace as central to who we are as Christians. Dr. Kinghorn, you and I have had conversations earlier, and I know that you have done a lot of work in uh, in the VA. Can you tell us a little bit about how you have been serving veterans?
0: It's my privilege to work as a staff psychiatrist at the VA hospital in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, I am not myself a veteran. I have uh, veterans in my family. Uh, and certainly grew up with a, a deep sense of appreciation for m- my grandfather's service in the Second World War. But uh, coming to the VA, beginning to work with veterans, uh, beginning as a resident in psychiatry at Duke, I found just to be an incredible privilege and uh, to be able to, to serve people who often have seen uh, parts of the world and, uh, and the realities of the world that I haven't, and from them to learn about what it's like to go to prepare for war uh, to go to war, to, to see the costs of war, and then to return uh, to the civilian culture and to figure out what that means is for me something that's deeply meaningful to be able to walk alongside them.
1: One term that I've heard you use that I had never heard before was this expression, moral injury. Would you uh, explain what that term is and and how it applies to the the kind of of, of, of care that you give to veterans.
0: Absolutely. Moral injury is a term that has been around for about 10 or 15 years in the clinical literature, at least widely talked about. But the way that I, that I think about moral injury as a psychiatrist is that for a long time, we had a sense of what trauma was and specifically what caused post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And for a long time, the assumption was that PTSD is at root a disorder of fear and anxiety, that something happens to you uh, that causes a deep response of fear or anxiety, that that then generalizes to other things in your life and world. And, and so uh, PTSD is at root a problem of having too much fear or fear that uh, it shows up in unhelpful ways. And so a lot of our treatments that we've developed in the mental health system for PTSD have been at root about decreasing anxiety and fear. And to be clear, a lot of PTSD is exactly that. So a lot of people listening here will have PTSD or know people with PTSD that, in which like, deep-seated fear and anxiety is a central driver. But there's been an increasing recognition that that doesn't actually account for the way that a lot of veterans, the way that a lot of others uh, experience trauma. And uh, specifically because trauma isn't just something that happens to you that causes fear, it can be something that you have yourself done or participated in. So a lot of veterans find that they have done things or seen things done or participated in things related to war that they have a really hard time coming to terms with in the months and years that follow. And the central emotion might not be fear, but it might be things like shame or guilt or rage or grief Moral injury is essentially names the fact that some trauma relates not just from what's done to you, but from what we have done. And they have to then understand that and 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 come to reconcile with that. And uh, and so it ha- it means that to even understand the nature of trauma, we have to be able to understand what it means to be at war and to act in the world or to be in some other context.
1: Yeah, and I think that the concept of moral injury as it relates to moral responsibility this seems to be something that um, it, it may be particularly applicable to veterans, but not only to veterans, because I can oh. think of all kinds of context in which uh, this would have a real application.
0: Absolutely. Increasingly, although the word moral injury really began in relationship to veterans, it's now being used in relationship to healthcare workers, to incarcerated people, to law enforcement officers to many others who are find themselves either in, in the past or in the present in situations where they uh, act in a way that uh, in some ways betrays their most deeply held moral beliefs. Uh, and some have suggested that, uh, that moral injury at, uh, is at root uh, not just a problem of having done something that transgresses a, a moral norm, but what does it mean uh, to find yourself living in systems that you and, and in a culture that you always thought was basically for you, or at least for the good, and then come to a realization that it's not.
1: Yeah, and and I'm thinking of various counseling situations I have found myself in uh, as a pastor through the years, and many times I would be talking to someone who would talk about something that was that it was in their past, uh, something that they had done. And they would say, I know God has forgiven me, Mm -hmm. but I still struggle with it. And I begin to realize what they're struggling with is, okay, God may have forgiven me, but I don't know how to forgive myself. So is that what we're talking about? That is a lot of
0: what happens in moral injury, that people feel that uh, they've done something for which either they can't be forgiven, or they don't know how to experience the forgiveness of others and the experience of God. And their capacity to forgive themselves, mm-hmm. and so treatment for moral injury is often helping to create the kind of to set the table for people to be able to uh, come to that place of um, lament, sometimes of confession, mm-hmm. of uh, giving and receiving forgiveness insofar as that's possible, and then to be able to move
3: on. I want to pick up on that on that point as this relates to the church. So your work is in psychiatry, psychology, and the intersection here with mental health uh, from a Christian perspective. Oftentimes people in the church, even pastors, see these, these disciplines of psychiatry and psychology as having emerged from a secular scientific kind of angle, oftentimes hostile to Christianity. And yet you've you've identified ways where Christians have actually been involved in shaping mental health care into what it is today. Who Who are some examples and what are some some insights that you would have there on that? I think this is such
0: an important question because so often psychiatry and psychology are perceived to be in some ways anti-Christian or in some ways opposed to the gospel. And that comes from uh, the fact that Sigmund Freud certainly was a critic of Christianity and early behaviorists within psychology were critics of Christianity. Psychiatrists are less likely to be religious and less likely to be Christian than other physicians so I get it. There's, there's reasons why people think that. But if you look more broadly at the history of how people with mental illness have mm-hmm. been treated, Christians have been part of the solution for a long time. One thing that people don't always know is that the very institution of the hospital, the mm-hmm. charity hospital, a place yeah. that you could come and get help just because you were sick, is something that Christians innovated in the fourth century through monasteries associated with St. Basil of Caesarea. The idea that Christ is in the person who's sick, that to care for someone who's sick is to care for Christ himself. Mm-hmm. And that extended into mental health care. One of the first hospitals for people with mental illness in the Western world was founded in Valencia, Spain, in 1409 by a Spanish friar, Juan Gilberto Joffre, who saw a man being beaten on the streets, who carried the man to his chapter house, who then went and preached a sermon at the cathedral of Valencia, in 1409 and said, you, people of Valencia, cannot let this happen in your community. So they built the Hospital of the Holy Innocents. Later on, the Quakers completely changed the face of mental health care by taking people out of uh, urban prison-like settings and taking them into country retreats where they could heal. The Mennonites in the mid-20th century in the United States did very similar things. There's all sorts of stories of Christians leading by example, creating new forms of institutions. So when you think about it in that way, Christians have been at this work for a
1: very long time.
3: Yeah, that's fantastic.
1: So let's talk about the Christian way of thinking as it relates to your practice and disciplines. We live in in a modern world, and the modern world has a very mechanistic Understanding of yeah. reality, we are in this giant clock in which yeah. you and I are cogs, yeah. and so there is this tendency to see humans as just little machines. Yes, you push back on that. Uh, how, how when you're speaking to your your patients, how do you how do you uh, talk to them to maybe get them to thinking differently? Yeah, well. I'd say at
0: least since the 1600s, we've been dominated in our world by the image that the human body is a kind of machine. And that can easily become the human overall as a kind of machine, at least since the time of Rene Descartes. Uh, And that kind of way of of thinking is very common within medicine, where, where you go into a hospital and you get treated as a machine and fixed and moved. And But it plugged into a
1: lot of machines. That's
0: right, exactly. But it can also be the case within mental health care. I think that the way that the image of the machine works in mental health care is a little bit more subtle, but I feel it as a psychiatrist. So here's how you would treat somebody as a machine that needs fixing. One is you you identify unwanted experience or behavior, kind of emotional experience or things that you might do. And you you kind of separate them off from the self, and then you say, these are symptoms. And you then take a collection of symptoms and you give it a diagnostic name like generalized anxiety disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder or major depressive disorder. Then now that we have a collection of symptoms that has the name of a diagnosis attached, then we can do work and find technical interventions for those symptoms, and those might be a medication or it might be a very specific form of psychotherapy, or it might be something else. And having designed the technique to reduce those symptoms, we can then buy and sell those techniques so we can market medications and we can market units of therapist time. Now, to be clear, there's a lot. I love being a psychiatrist. I operate in that world all the time, prescribing medications, referring people for psychotherapy, doing psychotherapy. That can be very helpful, but it comes at a cost as well. If If the central message that people get when they come into mental health care is you're broken and you need fixing, and the way to fix you is through a medication, or the way to fix you is through this particular intervention, then I think it leads to an image of, like, at root, my problem is that something within me is broken, or that I'm broken, that I'm a machine who needs fixing. And for a variety of reasons, I think that's unhelpful uh, as a way to understand ourselves. We're not just broken machines. I think one Christian view is that we are not machines, but we are pilgrims or wayfarers. We are God's good creatures who are from God as our source and our creator, who are on a journey to God as our end and our goal and our joy, and that our life in this world is always that of a wayfarer. And so as a psychiatrist, or for those who are listening as pastors or others, we we come alongside wayfarers as fellow wayfarers And the central question then is what's needed right now for the journey, which is a very different question than how do I fix this broken machine? You're right. Because what's needed might be a a, a community. What's needed might be to get out of an abusive relationship. What's needed might be a meal. What's needed might be prayer. What's needed might be a medication or a hospitalization or a course of psychotherapy. But it broadens the perspective and it keeps us from thinking about what we do simply as fixing something that's broken. That's not fundamentally a Christian way to understand what it means to be human.
1: It would fundamentally change, I would think, the way one understands the, uh, the role of pharmaceutical tools. Absolutely. In, in other words, the medicines may be something that can be understood as interventions, but they're not the solutions.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, medications can be very helpful. Uh, they, I prescribe medications very frequently as a psychiatrist, and medications have a, uh, a role to help decrease the barriers for people to be on uh, a particular journey, a journey to God. And so if someone can't get out of bed, if someone is uh, just simply needing to survive from one week to another, uh, someone is unable to get out of the house to go to therapy— uh, unable to to do those things that can lead to growth and flourishing, then medications can be very helpful uh, for a time, uh, but medications are rarely, uh, if ever, the complete solution. Hmm. Medications can be helpful; they can be a blessing; they can be a gift of God, but they're never the complete solution. Almost always, what's needed is things beyond medications. At the very least, talking to a therapist, or at the very least, being in being. Uh, able to uh, grow in relationship with others and in relationship with one's own
3: experience in ways that medications just simply aren't powerful enough to do in general. I want to put my pastor hat back on. You were applying or even sort of diagnosing some kinds of um, perhaps common therapies or common needs that we have in our congregations. Oftentimes, I fear, even worry perhaps, um, that as a pastor, my antennas aren't tuned well enough to even... Um, detect the kinds of mental health, serious mental health issues that might be present in my congregation. What suggestions would you have for, I'm not trained in psychology or psychiatry, but I also want to be a good shepherd, and I don't want to pretend to have all the answers, but I want to at least know what to look for and then be able to to point people in the right direction. What kind of things should pastors look for when it comes to symptoms of serious mental health issues? Yeah, pastors have a very important role.
0: We know from uh, research that people often are more likely to come to pastors as mm. kind of first line um, people uh, to from whom they're seeking counsel than they are to go to certainly therapists or primary care physicians. Uh, pastors are incredibly important. I think a, a few principles would apply. I think one is that it's always helpful as a pastor to actually do some work to learn more about how various mental health problems present. Uh, there's a curriculum called Mental Health First Aid that's a very basic way of learning about basic forms of mental health problems. Uh, I think it's also really important for pastors to learn more about how to respond to someone who's considering suicide Mm. and know how to direct people to the right kind of help and resources. So I think doing some uh, some work on just learning how um, how things present is really important. I think also every pastor and some pastors don't have this luxury, but I think it's possible in most communities to develop a network of counselors, of therapists, of uh, clinicians in the community that can be resources, both resources for referral, but also resources for the pastor to call and say, I'm facing a really difficult situation and I, I need a listening ear. And there's many Christian therapists who would be willing to play that kind of role with pastors because they care about people. And so I think and then I think once the pastor gets to a point where um, where there's a sense of like things are going on here that I don't I don't fully know if I'm if I have the right things to say or Mm if if uh, if my training is, is adequate, then I think absolutely. Being able to refer people uh, to others for help is important, and yeah. so so being uh, confident as pastors that you have something to offer, but also knowing like what are the limits beyond right. which to refer. And I would say when someone is is uh, experiencing thoughts of suicide, as is very common, uh, and or when someone is having difficulty functioning in their life, like difficulty getting out of bed or difficulty going to work, then I think I think in the case of suicide, always, and in other cases, more often than not, people would really benefit from talking to a a trained clinician, and I think pastors can encourage that and can do a lot to take the stigma off of that if yeah. they actually encourage people to seek that kind of
3: help. That resource you said it was called um, something first aid, mental health first aid. Mental Is health that, first aid. Where would we find that?
0: Uh, you can easily Google that. It's a it's an accessible resource. that okay. There's a national website for it. Uh, there's also some uh, church based. Uh, um, uh, curricula that uh, churches can go through that can talk about some of these questions. One is put out by a group out of uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, called the Sanctuary Mental Health Collaborative. Mm. And they have a nice like, video combined resource that just talks, it's Christians talking about their own experiences of yeah. mental health challenges. It's very uh, gospel-centered, and it uh, is a good resource for churches. Great
3: before we close um, dr. Kinghorn you teach for the Duke Divinity School as well as the Duke Medical Center and we just have to note that um, Duke recently suffered two devastating losses to UNC I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you how is your mental health and how is the mental health of the the collective environment there at Duke in light of uh, the basketball season
0: yeah it's uh you know we uh, we have to we have to learn through adversity I think <laughs> yeah you know, having uh, had such hopes for the tournament and then if you need us to away, send
3: pastoral care over to assist, we'd be happy. To yeah, accept. I can. I can hear the uh, the
0: regret in your voice about that. <laughs> so, yeah,
3: yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. today. It really is. This conversation could go for so long, and I hope this is just the beginning of many more. But thank you for your time and for your good work. Thank you all so much.
0: Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you are in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you are called in the future by visiting sebts.edu.
2: Now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the segment where professors here at Southeastern tell you the books that they're reading right now. So Dr. Keithley, what's on your bookshelf? In 2017,
1: a lot of books came out about Martin Luther and the Reformation. And the reason for this is because 2017 was the 500th anniversary of him posting the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. One of the better books that d- gives a history of that period is Craig Harline's A World Ablaze, The Rise of Martin Luther, and the Birth of the Reformation. I really liked this book for a lot of reasons. Uh, it, if, if you're interested in getting to know the history of the Reformation, but you don't have a lot of time to slog through, a lot of the details are, I mean, there are, there are some very thorough and excellent works uh, that are quite academic. This one is written by an academic, but it's very approachable. It's very readable. Uh, it's written almost in, a, in a, uh, the style of a novel. It's engaging. It's entertaining. But it's also very informative. And so if someone is wanting to know about the Reformation or learn about the life of Luther, I don't know of a greater introduction than this. Here's one little tidbit. The 95 Theses were not the first set of theses that uh, Luther posted. He actually posted another set of 105 <laughs> against uh, the Catholics' teaching on justification about four or five months earlier, and nobody paid attention to it. Really? Yeah. So what was the difference? Well, the 95 Theses Against Indulgences was something about the way the Catholic Church was using indulgences to raise money. And the political figures in uh, the, throughout the Catholic Church Church were very resentful of the Catholic Church doing that. And so, yes, it was a doctrinal issue, but when you added doctrine plus the pocketbook, ka-ching, suddenly everyone was interested. And so it's quite an intriguing read. So I encourage you. It's called uh, uh, A World Ablaze, and it's by Craig Harline, and it's his biography of Luther.
2: A World Ablaze. Sounds like a really good recommendation. Thank you, Dr. Keithley, And thank you all for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, again, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and review, share the episode with a friend. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.